This is a CBC podcast. Congratulations! If you are listening to this podcast, chances are you have an internet connection. Okay, okay. I know it doesn't feel like a big achievement, and we can't even remember life before Wi-Fi. But my parents told me when they were young, they had something called dial-up internet, where you'd have to use a phone line to get a connection. Who even uses phone lines anymore? What is that? <laughs> and it made this beepy, crunchy sound. It was like meep. Oh, and even when you did get on, you could really only see basic web pages, and it would take an hour to send an email. My parents are from the Stone Ages, from what I've gathered. As you can tell, a lot has changed since then. Now we have Wi-Fi. We store things in the cloud, and I can send a picture to my family on the other side of the world in seconds. It's just bam, sent. It's magic. But I don't really understand how information travels from my phone all the way to my cousin's phone in Australia. I'm literally more than ten thousand miles away, but a picture could get there in seconds. How does it do that so quickly? I know that the router in my house gives me an internet connection, but after the picture leaves my phone, I have no idea where it goes. Does it go in the air around us? In space? Magic pigeons? I store a lot of my stuff in the cloud, so is that actually in a cloud? I use the internet every day to do homework and have fun and talk to friends. So, shouldn't I know more about it? Where is the internet? Ty asks why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast. Ty asks why. There are so many good questions out there that you really want to have answered. Is it possible to predict the future? How do I know what's true on the internet? Why are viruses so good at what they do? What's the deal with screen time? How else can we power the planet? And where's the internet? I asked my little bro Kian where he thinks these interwebs are. I don't think the internet has a specific place. I know that the internet isn't a building. The internet is like these invisible wires that connect to real wires, and then you can like control it and make passwords. You can buy fast internet or slow internet. The internet can go down. It's not completely stable, but it's just kind of this invisible system. It's like the ground. There's little worms going through the ground, except instead of worms being here and there, worms would be everywhere. See, internet is just this stuff that we don't notice, but it's just everywhere. Hmm, I'm not sure if the internet's like worms, and the thought of worms being everywhere kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. But Kian does have a good point. The internet feels very invisible. We really don't notice where it is or how it works, unless, of course, it goes down. And it feels weird that I don't know very much about this thing that I use every day. Well, there's no reason for the people who build the internet 
to publicize where the internet is. That's Nicole Staroselsky. She's an associate professor of media culture and communication at New York University. Nicole studies the invisible parts that keep the internet running, and she told me, for the most part, the internet doesn't actually travel through thin air. It's under the ocean. Wait, what? Actually, it's on the very bottom of the ocean, in a bunch of garden hoses. Also, it's underground, and sometimes it's in like large warehouses. I'm sorry. It's in the ocean. Yeah, it's in the ocean. I was pretty sure that the cloud didn't literally mean a bunch of boxes in the sky, but now it's all lies. It's not in the air. Why would they call it the cloud if it's in the ocean? Well, because they want you to think it's in the air. So when all those companies are marketing to you, saying like, "Hey, pay me fifty bucks or a hundred bucks for your internet." They're not going to give you images of rocks or warehouses or things underground or the ocean, because you don't want to spend fifty dollars to throw all your signals into the ocean. You want to spend fifty dollars to be liberated from all the things that are around you. You want to imagine that the internet is everywhere, and like kind of touches you like a cloud, and then runs and touches somebody else. So it's a really great idea, but it has nothing to do with where it actually is. So if I send my cousin up in Australia a funny photo of me and my little brother that I just like just took, how does it get to them? Like, how does it get from Toronto all the way to Australia if it's not in the clouds? Let's say you take it on your phone. Usually, what would happen is it would go to like a cell phone tower. And from there, it would link into a terrestrial underground cable grid, and so it would travel on these small fiber optic glass cables to some place called a network exchange, which is basically like a train station. It's like a train station for internet signals. So your really funny photo would go to this like train station for internet signals, and it would take another train until it got to the west coast. So it would travel all the way across underground, you know, Canada into the U.S. And then from there, it might get on the Southern Cross cable network, and it would go to a cable landing point, which is basically like a port for your funny photo. And it would get on a undersea cable, and it would go on the very bottom of the ocean, and then it would like come up at Hawaii, or maybe it would come up at Fiji, which are some stopping points on that cable route, before going to Sydney, and then it would. Link to an underground network, go to another set of you know internet train stations, and then it would eventually jump from a cell tower to your cousin's phone. But only those last two points are likely in the air. The rest of it would all be on the bottom of the ocean or in these like exchanges or underground. That's, I mean, that's wild. It's crazy to think that you know, like you can make this whole movie of how this little tiny packet of information goes all the way through this subway under Canada, and then like in the ocean at the bottom of the ocean bed, all the way to Australia. Yeah, and every single time you send a photo, that happens, like over and over. So it's just like a a trip that keeps happening. <laughs> And millions of people are doing this at the same time. Like millions of people's photos are traveling on the same cable on the same subway under the earth, under the ocean, all at once. So I'm guessing that the cables are like, you know, they're under the water, so you don't really get to see them. But they're like massive, so they just 
could have a lot of bandwidth and they could send a lot of things at once. No, no, they're super small. They're literally the size of a garden hose. What? Then how would you like send like three photos at a time? I, there'd be this like huge traffic jam like halfway in the Atlantic. So within that garden hose, there are these thin fibers and these fibers are super, super, super pure glass. And what they're doing is they break your photo down into these little like light signals. And the way they do it is it's like, it's kind of like a wave, right? So you can send multiples at the same time, as long as they don't interfere with one another. And so uh, you could send just tons of information. So then I'm guessing it just kind of like, you know, gets my image, gets the funky image with the funny filter. It breaks it down into a bunch of light signals and then pew, 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 and just sends this array of light that's like, oh, well, this is what the image is. Exactly. That's that's kind of like what happens. So if these tubes are so thin, I mean, there's still a lot of people sending messages to each other. So is there like this crazy spider web of them below the world? Well, yes, but not as many as you would think. There's something like 400 cable systems, a little over 400 cable systems that carry all of the global internet. What? So everybody, everybody in the whole world communicating across oceans does so on around 400-ish systems. That's ridiculous. There's like 4 million people in Toronto. That How would you do that in garden hoses? Well, they can just cram a whole lot of information into a garden hose these days. It's light going through glass. And so if you think about like when you turn on a light in a room, how does it instantly fill the room with brightness? as fast as light goes, right? So it's like turning on a light that sends signals all across the world. Hello, I think you cut out. The internet went down again. During this call, the garden hosts actually showed us how finicky they are and that they mess up all the time. I think we lost, I think we lost connection. Sorry, I've just... Our internet went out for a second. See? The cables. Our signal got dropped somewhere underground. The cables, man. So, that actually gives me an interesting question. You know, you don't want things pulling and tugging. You don't want the cables to shift, right? What happens if you got, like, a shark or a fish that just wanted to be very anarchist and just, you know, tug the cable or try to chew the cable? So... That did happen way back in the 1980s when they first started with fiber optic cables. There was a case where a shark bit a cable because the cable was emitting a frequency that the shark like was attracted to. But since then, they insulated, so there's no... You know, I know there are still anarchist sharks, but they have other targets right now. Like, cables are just really not an interesting target. It's just a very odd-looking rock. Yeah, exactly. Very long, extended rock. It's so cool that these thin cables get our stuff where it needs to be, literally at the speed of light and underwater. I didn't even know they exist until I talked to Nicole, so I really wanted to go take a look at one of them. I don't live by the ocean, but I found out there's actually an underwater cable right here in Toronto. It starts from a beach, goes straight through Lake Ontario to New York State, which is where Nicole is. Cross Lake Fiber, the company who laid the cable, gave me an address and I headed over to the beach. But 
when I got there, there really wasn't much to look at. Oh, come on, where is it? Is that, no, that's just a stick. I, if I were a very long garden hose, where would I be hiding? Come on, I've been searching for like 30 seconds. Show me the fiber. Turns out, the cable was actually hidden under a manhole. It's just a boring old beige manhole. Womp womp. Not sure what I was expecting to find. I mean, the cables need to be protected from people stepping on them or whatever, but I was hoping to see something. I just can't get over this idea that something so big and powerful is almost completely invisible to us. Because when something's invisible, it's harder to figure it out or ask the right questions about it. The problem is, is that you, if you don't know where your internet is, you don't know where it's going, right? And you don't know who has control over it. Nicole also pointed out that once you see where the not-so-invisible internet travels, you also see that not everyone has access to it. There are a lot of areas where, you know, you don't necessarily have a huge fiber pipe. And so, like, a lot of more sort of remote or rural areas are often sort of underserved by fiber optic cable systems, as are islands. And so for that reason, people have been launching these satellite networks to try to get the fringe areas that are not on the fiber grid. It takes a lot of time and money to put up cell towers and lay down garden hoses in the ocean. And... The world's not a super fair place, so some places get more investment than others. Only half of the world's population is online, and experts say that the internet won't become universal until 2050? That's like 30 years away. That's, that's so crazy. But engineers are thinking of new ways to bring it to people every day, like those satellite networks Nicole mentioned, or even weirder stuff. When I did a little digging online, I found a company called Loon, and they actually use flying balloons to give people an internet connection in remote areas. Isn't that awesome? But apparently, those aren't the only places that really need fast connections. Sometimes, even people in big cities don't have affordable internet access. Actually, in the US, more disconnected families are living in cities, not rural areas. I had no idea, but this is actually happening here in Canada too. In certain cities, internet speed can be different neighborhood to neighborhood, and there are even areas called dead zones where high speed just isn't available at all. Isn't that kind of shocking? Why can't everyone get affordable fast internet? Shouldn't someone do something about it? It shouldn't matter where you live, it shouldn't matter what race you are. Um, you should be able to have access to this tool that allows you to participate, you know, in the world. That's Janice Gates. She's the director of the Equitable Internet Initiative in Detroit. And they're doing something about the lack of internet in their communities. So in this episode, I'm asking the question, where is the internet? So where is the internet for you? Well, in the city of Detroit, it's primarily in midtown and downtown. Those are the neighborhoods in this city that have high-speed access and they have affordable access. But that's not the case for the other neighborhoods in Detroit, and Janice explained why. You know, you can't look at the lack of internet access without also looking at race. 
So Detroit is a majority black city. And I don't think that it should be surprising to anyone that the neighborhoods that have um, majority black and brown populations have the least access to internet. Um, Your neighborhood just doesn't see the investment that they should. That's quite sad, honestly. Just that's a bummer, you know, that just sucks. Yep, it does. If you don't have the internet, you can't really, you know, socialize with your friends. I mean, if you have a phone, then you're lucky. But if you want to use social media um, and you don't have the internet, then you can't do that. If you're an adult, that could affect your ability to apply for jobs. You can't find, you know, city resources, though the transportation or the bus schedules. Um, So if your family was in need of food, you wouldn't be able to find like where there are food pantries. And you can't, you know, there's a lot of shopping online now. Um, So you get left out of basically being able to participate in the economy. Yeah, that just, that kind of seems like a cycle, you know. You don't have internet, so you can't get access and opportunities to jobs and places like that, so you won't get support. Exactly. Yes, you're absolutely right that it is a cycle. And one of the overarching things that it does is it leaves a lot of people in poverty. So what the Equitable Internet Initiative is trying to do is break this cycle by bringing the internet to people that have not been able to afford it. And their solution doesn't rely on super fancy engineering. Instead, it's actually really simple. Honestly, the first way that we start is by talking to them, Uh, you know, which is not a thing that, you know, other internet service providers do. We believe in building with the community. So we want them to be involved in the decision making of their internet. The whole network is based around the work of people called digital stewards. These are people who live in the neighborhoods and are committed to helping out. So the first thing they did was they went and surveyed their neighborhoods. So they went out to see, you know, door by door who had internet access and who did not. Then they were able to use Google Earth to map out how do we get the signal from that tall building? The Renaissance Center, which is the tallest building in Detroit, it's where all of our connections come from. How do we get the signal from that tall building to one of the other tall buildings in each of the neighborhoods? So once they figure that out, you know, they put equipment on each of those buildings. And then from there, they had to go back and work with residents and then people who owned businesses in the neighborhood to then get that internet signal to the different homes in the neighborhood. So how is it different than the internet that I use, if it is? We call it point-to-point access. Most internet, you know, is distributed, you know, think about a spider web. Um, With point-to-point, it's literally from tall building to smaller building. So it's really important. We call it line of sight. So you, sh- you should be able to see like from one tall building to a, a smaller building and then to the individual homes. Um, it's not as high speed as other internet that you have, but it still allows you 
to get online. So does this community internet network, is the internet cheaper? Yes. So we kind of use a sliding scale, and that just means it depends on really what the people can afford. So in some cases, you know, depending on the family and their individual circumstance, they don't pay at all. Other families pay about $10. Other families, sometimes they pay 20 Wow, I never thought it would be possible to just pay what you can for an internet service. Like, if you were to lose your job, you wouldn't be able to tell your internet service provider, sorry, I can only pay half this month. They'd probably just cut your internet off. But because this is run by the community, they make it cheap and actually care if you can afford it. So nice. And making the internet cheaper isn't the only thing the project does. The digital stewards actively help the residents. They don't just set it up and leave it there. They're really important, right? Because not only do they build the network, they host trainings. So they will teach people, you know, how to um, set up an email address. Um, They'll go over like how to use a computer in general. Um, how to set up a social media account, and then kind of teaching them about how to make their data secure, you know, when they're just surfing the web. So the digital stewards are, they're really important. And we make sure that the stewards that we hire come from the neighborhood that they work in. So the stewards are not only giving people an internet connection to use, they're teaching them how to use it and how to protect themselves and just have fun with it. It's not like cold and impersonal, where you get an internet bill, you paid any month and that's it. This thing they built, you could have people you could keep going to if you don't know how to use your email or if you can't afford to pay that month. Because the internet isn't just a connection, it's also the people that use it and the people who build it, you know? What was your reaction, like your personal reaction, once all of this started to be up and running? How did it feel? Oh my goodness, I I don't cry a whole lot in public, but it really makes me cry um, because, and it it makes me really proud. They're no longer disadvantaged. Uh, We call that equity. That's why we call it the Equitable Internet Initiative you know, bringing the internet to them and allowing them to be part of the process, I think really just allows them to engage as a full citizen. When I started this journey, I thought of the internet as this invisible, effortless thing. My computer was automatically connected to Wi-Fi and I didn't even have to think about it. But now I know it's not limitless at all. It's actually a huge privilege to have an easy access to it. I keep thinking back to that boring manhole near the beach. It kind of feels like the perfect metaphor for this whole thing. Like, it's literally keeping a lid on the truth of the internet. That it's not this magic cloud, but a bunch of underwater cables and low-flying satellites and balloons and community networks. It's a really real physical thing built by real people. And... Nicole pointed out it needs to be maintained by people, too. The internet depends on so many people. 
Like, it's not that you just throw a hose down and then it's done. You need the people on the ships who go pull it up and repair it. You need the people who are at the ports and the train stations of the internet to go upgrade it and make sure that it's functioning. So there are actually all these people who are doing the work of keeping the internet alive right now. Key and I have returned with answers. I figured out where the internet is. Elaborate. Did you know that the internet is actually just a big spider web of cables underwater? Wow. They're actually the size of a garden hose. I don't know. I mean, how can the internet run through the little garden hose in the middle of the ocean? Because there's nothing giving it the signal out there. Well, how I learned it works is that it's a bunch of these thin little, like, kind of like noodle strips that are glass. And then what it does is it sends these little bursts of light through the glass, and then the the glass is so pure that the light just kind of can somehow manage to pew and go all the way to the wherever it needs to go, which can be on the other side of the world. I feel like if you're shooting a light from a glass tube in the ocean, that'd just be so hard because it's so easy to miss or mistime it. Or the light could just like be faded out by like a fish or like the water. What happens if one of these like breaks or something? I don't know, man. Like it's so weird to me that the internet's just a bunch of little like flashlight signals across the ocean. It seems so like it would like it would stop working way too easily. It seems like it's just not enough. Yeah, I think Kian's onto something here. Now that I know that the internet is this very real, physical thing, it does seem more precarious and more precious. It's not just magic from the sky, but it's the accumulation of all kinds of people's hard work. We made it, so we can break it. But we can also fix it. I don't know about you, but the next time I send a funny meme to my cousin in Australia, I'm going to be thinking about that long and winding journey of a bolt of light traveling on glass and underwater cables, avoiding sharks and crabs along the way. But I'm also going to try and remember all the people who helped make that happen, and all the people it hasn't happened for yet. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Ty Pool. This show is produced by Amanda Buckowitz and Judy D. Goo. Judy's also our digital producer. This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons, and she is also our editor and sound designer. The theme music is by Johnny Spence. Sound engineer is Montpère Menuyen, and our location manager is Ma Mère Nikki Pool. Thanks guys for paying for the internet so I can make podcasts and send funny memes. Today my guests were Nicole Staroselsky and Janice Gates. The Equitable Internet Initiative is a project by the Detroit Community Technology Project. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arv Narani. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.